Welcome back to Unchanging Education, Season 2, Episode 3, where we'll be focused on Bertrand Russell. Russell is not really thought of as an educational thinker, but his thoughts on education fit here really well, and interestingly, follow up from Gramsci, both in a historic way and also thematically. So jumping right in, one of the first big questions that Russell wants to advance is, should education have as its aim the good individual or the good citizen? It might not be obvious what's the distinction between a citizen and, and an individual. And it's also obvious that everyone is always both, an individual and a citizen. So I suppose the operative word here is good, which is never entirely clear. So a good individual or a good citizen. And we can think of this in terms of, well, what is the ideal individual self as separate from the group? And then also the ideal communal self in relationship to others. So this deeper philosophical question of the the ideal relationship between the self and others. And also but with the self in its relationship to itself in kind of a psychological sense. And I think one way to try to think about this is in a similar vein to what I was talking about with truth and justice. If education is going to have one or the other virtue at the helm, which one is more likely to enable the other? And there's a kind of a, a logical argument to be made that the one that better enables the other is preferable in the sense that you know, in, in that example, this is coming from Jonathan Haidt talking about universities. He doesn't make this claim, but you could say that a, a hypothesis is that we should more firmly prioritize and situate truth because with truth in our possession, justice is enabled. Whereas some kind of commitment to justice without uh, a full access to the truth is not necessarily useless, but not as useful as the other ordering. So how do we order the pair? So similarly here, with a good individual and a good citizen, is it the case that uh, a good or a robust sense of citizenship will lead to better individuals? Or the opposite, if we have good individuals, is it easier to make them into good citizens? So to bring this down to earth and to use an analogy, you can think of, think of a person, maybe someone you know, who grew up taking care of others. And didn't this person learn how to take care of themselves too through that experience? Versus someone who grows up only taking care of themselves. And through that, will that person learn how to take care of others? So there's a, there's a concern here that good citizens are less likely to fail as good individuals, while good individuals are more likely to succeed in becoming good citizens. So individuals here, in, in bringing this into a, a, a TVSC a paradigm, we can say that there's, a, there's an overlap here. So thinking about SC first, the individual is obviously the object of the of the therapeutic situation and a therapeutic culture will prioritize the individual over the citizen. And certainly there's more to therapy than, you know, feeling good or exploring your own personal feelings. 
But in a therapeutic situation, it's a good way to think of the atomized individual that's quite separate and distinct and not primarily thought of in a relationship to uh, like the, the responsibilities to the, to the group, to the collective, to society. And there's a, there's a, a benign interpretation that, well, sure, therapy doesn't make good citizens, but I mean, therapy doesn't really focus on one's obligations or duties to others, right? It's just focus on, as I said, the self in relation to itself. And there's a, a less benign, a more of a, more of a condemning interpretation that a therapeutic culture actively creates bad citizens or when there's an excess of a therapeutic mindset. And this therapeutic continuum runs from, well, it's got deep roots going all the way back to Freud, but in our lifetimes, in a more contemporary sense, the self-esteem movement, we could also say the shift from a traditional sense of esteem, which is more social, it's granted by others, into self-esteem. And how this moves into a contemporary situation that would involve something like safe spaces. It's a very therapeutic ring to it. And SEL, social emotional learning. And there may be a sense that, well, what is the role of social change in this individual citizen dichotomy? And unless education itself seeks to overthrow the culture that it operates within, well, a citizenry that is set against its own society, or when the state fails to make good citizens who ultimately act somehow in service or in faith to that society itself, it's difficult to see how this can lead to a good outcome. Now, we can also say, well, of course, we have to achieve both. We need, we need good individuals and we need good citizens. So let's get into what that means a little bit more in Russell. It is difficult to deny that the cultivation of the individual and the training of the citizen are different things. Now, I think it's clear to me that this idea of cultivating the individual is very important in, in student-centered education as the dominant form of education today. Whereas this idea that we're training citizens, I think, would in some sense offend the sensibilities of the, the dominant way of thinking in education today. Citizens, as conceived by governments, are persons who admire the status quo and are prepared to exert themselves for its preservation. Again, uh, I don't think that this would really have much space, much air to breathe in education today, based on primarily based upon the dominant pedagogical influences. That this idea that, well, what we need to do in education is we need to train useful citizens who admire the status quo and exert themselves to preserve the status quo. I think a lot of people would say, oh my God, well, the, the, ultimately it's based on this kind of philosophical bedrock and this, this difference of opinion of how good or how bad the status quo is. People who think that the status quo is, you know, the worst thing ever, obviously they're not going to be willing to exert themselves to preserve it, certainly won't admire it. And in that sense, I mean, in Russell's sense, they obviously these are not well-trained citizens, I suppose. And, and obviously it's going to sound very regressive, but that's also just a product of the way that we've been conditioned to think through education and also the way that we've shaped and formed education as a philosophy over the past hundred years. So obviously citizenry is going to be more conservative and preserving the status quo. And quote, it involves an absence of creativeness and a willingness to acquiesce in the powers that be. 
So again, education, like SC would have creativeness as, as a huge emphasis. And this idea of, of acquiescing or giving in to the powers that be or the status quo, um, again, would offend that sensibility. And this goes all the way back to um, the piece, uh, the, the entry in, the, in Russell's History of Western Philosophy talking about Rousseau who I'm situating as the great-grandfather of student-centered education, in that equality is to be valued above liberty. Whereas for Locke, Locke as the great-grandfather of teacher-centeredness, it, it would not be. But we can see how equality and liberty map onto individuality and citizenship, too. That individuals, to an individual will desire equality whereas citizens are more likely to more highly value liberty continuing with russell quote the purpose of the state is of course to train citizens and to add as a comment it would seem that this could be true unless that state that government is, or that nation, is suicidal, right? That we, as a state, have decided that we do not want to train citizens, that we're not interested in good citizens. All we care about are good individuals. And the sense is that uh, the state cannot survive, that, that putting that super premium onto individuality at the expense of citizenship so individuality is, of course, going to be more liberal. It's going to advocate for change and be progressive or even revolutionary. Whereas citizenship, I think, is inherently more conservative. And again, there's, a, there's going to be a debate here on, fundamentally, how good or how bad the status quo is. We'll determine this. But citizenship is more conservative. Again, as stated, it advocates the status quo, uh, being prepared to exert yourself for the preservation of the status quo being willing to sacrifice creativeness or creativity for for the greater good. And that citizenship is going to have more of a, uh, a traditional set of priorities, including, for example, law and order, right? Citizenship is very much pro-order and anti-lawlessness. But the extent to which we almost worship individuality um, if law and order can be seen as imposing upon the individual doing what they want, then that can become negotiable. So there, there's a, a middle section here that in a way sticks out like a sore thumb, but I want to include it anyway, partly because of the challenge that it, it poses in terms of its interpretation and I think you'll see what I mean. So let me get through the quote and let me try to try to unpack and, and situate it. And this is Russell thinking about education under an extreme circumstance. And he starts off by talking about survival or the survival demands. In in this sense that I, mean, I think to Historically, in terms of context, Russell was certainly someone who is sensitive to the possibility of, of a nuclear holocaust, of mutually assured destruction. And I think that that, that fear is, is sort of behind this piece here. So if we're concerned about the actual survival of you know, the human race on the planet, then it seems like a lot of this can be suspended. Okay, so, quote, I think this survival will demand, as a minimum condition, the establishment of a world state and the subsequent institution of a worldwide system of education designed to produce loyalty to the world state. No doubt, such a system of education will entail, at any rate for a century or two, certain crudities, they'll be crude, which will militate against the development of the individual. 
So what he's saying is if, if we're really serious about survival, then we may have to completely move towards, frankly, an, an, an almost oppressive sense of citizenship. Now, again, we, we have to be thinking of sort of a, an extinction level or an Avengers level event, some sort of Independence Day War of the Worlds. But if the alternative is chaos and death of civilization, the price will be worth paying. So here he is talking about that old thing about trading in freedom or liberty for security in an educational context. Continuing, it might entail considerable curtailment of the intellectual and of the aesthetic impulses. So if you're if you're giving up, you know, individuality for citizenship, then your own impulses have to be curtailed. I really, I think he's talking about sacrifice here. I think, nevertheless, that the most vital need of the near future will be the cultivation of a vivid sense of citizenship of the world. So, Russell is looking into the future here. And, again, this comes down to these very different interpretations of, you know, Citizenship education should be easy when the status quo is good. But when the status quo is, is terrible, then it's going to be hard to train a citizenship that wants to die to preserve it or defend it. And we're, we definitely see shades of, of a growing concern in education and elsewhere of this, this World Economic Forum globalism type idea. And so what we have to ask ourselves, similarly to the status quo question of how good or how bad it is, and then to proceed accordingly, are we really facing the chaos and the death of civilization on some global scale? And if so, we, the curtailment of impulses will be, according to Russell, a fair trade-off. But there's another concern here that I don't think is is drawn out, but I certainly think Russell would have been alive to this, that what we don't want to see is any sort of hijacking of, like, the fear of the chaos and death and the ways in which a, a pseudo-crisis is exploited in opportunism. Again, for the sake of loyalty to the world state... So it's hard to it's hard to understand in a way what Russell is saying here, um, but I think that I mean it's kind of a capo to say we need a balance of you know good individuals and good citizens, but he's saying that the more dire our situation becomes, um, you know, and again I think he's thinking of a sort of a World War Three type scenario, or how to survive it or how to how to bounce back from such a thing that we have to be even more willing to embrace citizenship and we have to be willing to make individual sacrifices including in a sense what he's saying is the sacrifice of our sense of the individual itself so obviously he's going very far but again he's also imagining a very extreme condition Okay, so let me set that aside. Now we have to remember that just because education might emphasize a certain attitude, it may not take hold. But this is less true for a certain knowledge. The mind will resist an imposition on its own free will. While a question with alternatives or a debate within which the individual may defend or reject any position is more penetrative. Okay, so getting out of the, the global scale and thinking about the United States in particular, Russell writes, quote, Certainly, the greatest danger, the greatest danger, from which the United States suffers at the present time, 
Again, this is in his present time. This is in the in the thirties. The greatest danger from which the United States suffers at the present time is the absence of any vivid sense of citizenship on the part of a large proportion of its inhabitants. This cannot be attributed to any failure to emphasize citizenship in education. On the contrary, the whole educational machine in America, from the public schools to the universities, is concerned to emphasize citizenship and to impress its duties, the duties of citizenship, upon the youthful mind. In spite of this educational effort, I just had an, an ellipsis here, dot, dot, dot. So the first thing I want to focus on is this phrase, the greatest danger. And I want to bring back the entry on Dewey in Russell's History of Western Philosophy, where he uses this exact same phrase, the greatest danger, in relation to Dewey. And you may remember discussing Dewey in this context of cosmic impiety. And in a, in a student-centered, again, Dewey is the grandfather of student-centeredness, there really is not an emphasis on citizenship education. There's an obvious emphasis on the individual. That citizenship is certainly far from a Deweyan student-centered or progressive ideal. But, you know, obviously Russell's writing a long, a long time ago here, and he's saying that you know, even though there is an emphasis on American citizenship, it doesn't really seem to, to be taken up. It's not obtained despite our efforts. But there's also an important distinction here and that the, an even greater danger than what Russell's here describing is the greatest danger is not just trying to train good citizens or, or to train young people, as, as Russell says, youthful minds and, and falling short. But at least at this time, there was not an anti-American sentiment that was being fomented in public education. That, I think, would have been unthinkable. Okay, so let me go back. I've, I've, I've discussed this passage before of Russell on Dewey, but I want to bring it in here now again. In all this, I feel a grave danger, the danger of what might be called cosmic impiety. The concept of truth as something dependent upon facts largely outside human control has been one of the ways in which philosophy, hitherto, has inculcated the necessary element of humility. So, truth as dependent upon something outside human control is kind of a long-winded way of talking about objective truth. It doesn't depend on human experience. And... He's saying that's a good thing. That's the, the philosophical and perhaps even also the scientific model. Whereas when we lose this sense of objective truth and we think that truth is just dependent upon it, or that what is true is in human control, as he writes, that instead of objective truth, we get subjective experience. Subjective experience, certainly, that's going to be that is going to interest Dewey much more and that Dewey is going to assert subjective experience over any sense of objective truth. And the problem there is that it leads to, in Russell's phrasing, uh, cosmic impiety. And, quote, when this check upon pride is removed, I mean, obviously pride becomes unchecked and the sense of humility or piety, they become lost, right? It's as if pride is sort of run amok. And then the problem is that under this mode of this subjective experience that is sort of prideful, lacking in humility, that we become prone to madness and intoxication, specifically a certain kind of, quote, a certain kind of madness, the intoxication of power. And this is where he uses... Again, using the line in History of Western Philosophy, just as he uses it in discussing American education in this other context, 
I am persuaded that this intoxication is the greatest danger of our time, and that any philosophy like Dewey's, which, however unintentionally, contributes to it, is increasing the danger of vast social disaster. Vast social disaster, again, this aligns with the previous passage about the chaos and death of civilization, and how when we're really up against that, sacrificing the individual for a sense of the citizen is warranted, in his opinion. So, bringing it back to America then. Despite a persistent emphasis on citizenship, qua patriotism, America, in Russell's mind, lacks a vivid sense of it. Many of those who would most identify with patriotism might not recognize this idea that that it seems as though American schools are, you know, I guess it really depends on individual experience. Some people will see that, you know, a, a pro-American patriotic attitude is certainly alive in some schools. So while American politics isn't my interest here, I think this quote needs to be unpacked to make this point. We seem to think now today that an emphasis on a new idea will naturally advance these ideas. And so what we have today, is it, is it a lack of citizenship or is it just a new sense of citizenship? But probably, probably the best interpretation, at least in this TVSC problematization, is that the focus on the individual has like eclipsed, taken over, or even outstripped the citizen. That citizenship itself is increasingly seen as irrelevant. That the individual and the, the creative, intellectual, and aesthetic impulses of the individual who is certainly not in favor of the status quo. So we have to continually remind ourselves and each other that and this message will stick and hold, but we know from common sense that any individual will tune out monotony. So where are we today in education? Well, certainly there's a, there's a big influence on the, on the social justice curriculum. And it may seem, again, it may seem like this is just a new or different form of citizenship education, but it really seems to have the individual at its center. And the logic, it seems, is that to instill a vivid sense of, for example, social justice, we need to emphasize these virtues in education. But this is the opposite of good citizenship in the way that Russell sees it. So it, it's certainly going to be very strange. And again, it may seem regressive to say, well, this idea of, you know, we need youthful minds to go out there and change the world in the service of social justice. Russell would say, well, really, they're acting out of this is an outgrowth of the individual, not an outgrowth of the citizen. And it may seem it may seem like a like a hard argument to make that you don't think that activism for social justice is being a good citizen. And Russell, it seems, would say no. It may align with being a good individual, but in his, again, in a, if we frame citizenship in a restrictive kind of way and that it doesn't at all align with, certainly in a therapeutic sense of what makes the individual feel good, like if it feels good to, you know, go out and march in the streets and say everything is terrible, then it's probably not good citizenship. Okay, but this seems to presuppose that this is lacking in our society. And that needs to be clearly demonstrated or at least argued for. And I think maybe it is an empirical question. To what extent we have, you know, pro-status quo type values being taught. And it becomes even more difficult because I think even though student-centeredness is so dominant, it still sees teacher-centeredness as dominant and would probably still think of education as yet unchanged. 
and that they're still, you know, pro, for example, pro-American, patriotic, um, you know, nationalistic and, and Christian institutions, and that that is the dominant ideology or, or hegemony. When I think that this is um, really kind of almost strangely myopic and maybe self-serving in a way, that actually, um, actually, what's being emphasized in school is this probably this this kind of radical individualism that sets the uh, a sense of citizenship aside. So education will naturally bring about or otherwise entail the manifestation in individual citizens. But this too needs to be clearly demonstrated or at least argued for. So some of the ideas that are coming up here aren't, I mean, they're not completely clear or obvious. And again, I'm just trying to select the most important pieces from the text. And again, a lot of it has to do with separating this you know, separating the duties of the good citizen in 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 the in a sense of social change, change for justice, being a change agent, and how how do we put that either into what it means to be a good individual or to be a good citizen, or not? Okay, to impress duties on the basis of attitudes and not knowledge might itself be wholly flawed, whereas a knowledge based approach that knowledge-based, teacher-centered approach that emphasizes but also explores the concrete problems of how, where, and why we fail when it comes to things like social justice and what we might do about it and allow for an exchange of ideas that cultivate how to think and not what to think. Not only would this be more intellectually satisfying and avoid any critique of indoctrination or re-education, by being more even-handed and less heavy-handed. But it may also deliver the desired results on a more just society. So one problem here is that this focus on like this, this new reinterpretation that in a way collapses the individual and the citizen. Education isn't really exploring what are the things that we need to change uh, the extent to which the status quo should not be upheld or maintained or that we shouldn't be making sacrifices for it. We should be making sacrifices against it, if anything. Hmm. Coming back to this idea that a teacher-centered truth orientation enables justice in a way that a, an SC justice focus does not enable truth. So let me take this step back and, and let me use an analogy here. Thinking about the example of a, a court case, right? We're thinking of justice and truth. So for justice, let's have stand in, in this example, by way of analogy, the judge, right? The judge or the justice. And that the facts of the case are standing in here for the truth. So if you have all of the facts, right? The truth of the case, but you don't have a judge in a, in a case, that ultimately it's still in pretty good shape and that you can have, you know, reasonable individuals trying to interpret the facts. But even if you have, let's say, the best judge, but the, the truth or the facts of the case are, are absent, that no matter how good a judge is, if they're ignorant of the facts, then, uh, th then the role of the judge is, is kind of pointless here. Okay, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to clarify. So this ties into recent commentary. I've talked about Height and others that say a university more focused on truth than justice will not only make a truer, but also indirectly a more just society while a justice-based system may lead to both less truth and less justice. So the idea in the truth versus justice pair 
may be framed as which better enables, and thus also which fails to enable or even disables the other. So put another way, trying to, to simplify this, in thinking of this truth versus justice, truth has more standalone value and justice has less standalone value. The justice is more dependent upon the truth than truth is upon justice. And in a similar, like trying to make the uh, kind of a double analogy here, is that in the same way, citizenship has more standalone value in terms of, certainly in the context of an educational system whereby teachers are basically acting like wards of the state or civil servants. And that a, a state full of good citizens can better can better deal then with the cultivation of the individual. But having a state full of cultivated individuals who lack a sense of citizenship are, in a sense, uh, at the most general sense, more likely to be more dysfunctional or less functional. Okay, so now this is jumping around a little bit. I know that there's certainly some confusion here. Um, but let me continue on with Russell and keep trying to, to add more clarity to this discussion. Russell seems to be, in my sense, in the way he articulates it, a masterful authority of what education is in a way that's neither collectively exhaustive nor mutually exclusive in the sense that in the next passage, Russell talks about three theories of education. And I don't think it's necessarily the case that these are the only three or that you, you can't have a mix or a blend of the three. But nevertheless, I think that this is, this is going to do well to ground Russell's thoughts about education. So the quote, three divergent theories of education all have their advocates in the present day. Of these, the first considers that the sole purpose of education is to provide opportunities of growth and to remove hampering influences. The second holds that the purpose of education is to give culture to the individual and to develop his capacities to the utmost. The third holds that education is to be considered rather in relation to the community than in relation to the individual, and that its business is to train useful citizens. Of these theories, the first is the newest, while the third is the oldest. So it is largely true that teacher-centeredness precedes student-centeredness, and so I think we can map the newest to SC and the oldest to TC. And so TC like the most obviously teacher-centered would be the third one and about training useful citizens. Whereas the newest and most student-centered would be opportunities of growth for the individual and removing hampering influences upon the individual. The third one that he talks about, I want to suggest... He's talking about giving culture, which I think has to be interpreted as transmission. I think that actually this transmission of giving culture is in a sense directly connected to citizenship. That's a, it's a bit strange to me that Russell would separate those two. Because, for example, if you're, if you're training citizenship, um, how do you... How do you train useful citizens without transmitting culture? Right, because that you're training these citizens to be useful in the culture that they're entering into. Right? So and, and even the sense of of training useful citizens, there needs to be an understanding of the needs of that society and what that society demands of citizens. So I think that this this these the latter two of the three, of, of, a, of a culture giving transmission 
and uh, training for useful citizenship, those to me, I think, can be combined into a teacher-centered understanding. Whereas the first one, the newest one, as he says, really seems to be the outlier. And that this is the more student-centered, therapeutic, laissez-faire approach. Right? Explicitly that we need to remove influences, remove hampering influences. So again, this is a what we call a negative theory or a negative understanding. That the best thing for the growth of the individual is just not to not to hamper, not to hinder them. Not basically not to influence or not to impose too much upon them. And if it's a matter of removing influences, it seems anathema to giving culture or to transmitting culture. So again, that's a secondary reason why I think two and three, transmission and citizenship, can be combined. Because the first one about the individual growth, removing hampering influences, I don't see how that can possibly fit together with transmission. Right? You wouldn't be giving someone culture while removing presumably cultural influences at the same time. But you can't start off. I mean, there's also a tendency in this, you know, modern new way in education that if we have opportunities for growth and we remove hampering influences, that this is going to create something like critical thinking or critical thinkers. But there's a reason to to try to pause that conclusion. Because in a sense, there's no way just to jump to the best stuff or the sweet stuff. That becoming a critical thinker is in a way an end result of a long process of education. That you can only become a critical thinker after you've really learned and you really know a lot. That you can't just start off at the beginning by making critical thinkers. Because, for example, you need a, a basis of a knowledge of a basis of knowledge, a foundation of things to think about. And especially from a younger age, there are, in a sense, a lot of things that need to be learned and followed uncritically. Or you can't, like the intellectual may want to call into question or, or cast doubt upon many things, but it's not, it would be seen as, as problematic for people who are all too young. So you you don't really start off with good, clear thinking. That I think that ultimately that's something that comes later once you become more in full possession of your faculties. Apply your mind to something and learn about it first. And Russell has a great quote about, in a way that you do need an uncritical approach and then a critical approach. So Russell has a quote that the correct attitude when studying any philosopher or really I think any, any field of inquiry is neither contempt nor reverence. You don't start off saying, oh, I, I, you start learning something, I, I, you read a couple of pages, I, I love it or I hate it. That you need what he calls hypothetical sympathy. That, okay, I mean, what, what is the, the, the value, the virtue, the merit of this? And even going a step further than that, Russell says, how does it feel to be a person who really deeply believes this, right? To really get inside um, the experience of kind of a, of fully endorsing something that you learn and then he says only later is there a revival of the critical attitude right so after you've let the ideas in then you can become critical and then you adopt the position of someone who used to really hold that that idea that way of thinking dear near and dear and then now you are in the position of someone who has now abandon that, that that is now what you used to think or how, how you used to feel about something, uh, that it becomes a prior 
understanding that you've left behind in some way. So that's also from the history of Western philosophy. So critical thinking in this sense, I think this is important for TVSC and, and while we're on the topic of Russell, I wanted to include it. Critical thinking is actually a stage of thinking about something. That it's not a separate or altogether superior species of thought. And if you don't have, basically, if you don't have learning in the right order, and if you try to have these really, like, critical thinking almost implies a sophisticated critique. And it's not something that an amateur or a novice is really capable or able to do. That it's certainly appropriate to think of something like critical thinking as, as an end goal or as an end result. But it's not something that can be situated as a, as a primary early kind of learning target. It's, 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 a, it's, in a way, it's as much a destination as it is a process. And that, certainly in a teacher-centered perspective, a lot of great learning can happen that is uncritical. And of course, that is going to require a high degree of trust in teachers. You can't have every time you try to teach someone something as a teacher, um, you don't want to constantly be justifying the value of what you're teaching. Otherwise, that's all that's all you end up doing. So that's the importance of a of kind of an established curriculum. And so going a little bit further, and this is getting us a little bit away from Russell, but you could think of what is the connection if we're putting something like an overemphasis on the individual and upon creative thinking and upon therapeutic education and putting all these things that seem unrelated into student-centered education. So focus on the individual, for example, of opinions. Sharing what you think and feel certainly has some value, but especially as an individual in a therapeutic kind of situation. But the problem is that there's no, no presiding authority is found, to use a phrase from rife. But the more and more we put a premium on what I think as an individual, what my opinion is, or even you hear the phrase, my truth, it sets up a problem in a way that the, again, thinking of this therapeutic mode, the patient slash student meets reality, real reality, only to crumble, right? That there's a fortitude that a citizen has that isn't always the case of the free-thinking, creative individual. And there's a problem with exalting oneself as the only authority. This goes back to the cosmic impiety, losing checks on pride, losing humility, and the danger that it poses for Russell. That, you know, well, whatever I think, that's just what I think, that's my opinion, or again, my truth. Once that is sort of run amok, in education, it's easy to want to just call that critical thinking and to pretend that it's good, even if it isn't. And it's difficult to correct course once that becomes established. And I think that this is the problem that Height, for example, is seeing clearly. And I think Rife really sees it clearest of all. And I think certainly this is on Russell's radar too. And again, going back to what Russell was talking about in terms of chaos and war, he didn't mean chaos and war, you know, as, as, a, as an ideological battle within education. He's really thinking about, you know, global catastrophe. But within education, of course, even if it seems that we do have chaos and war, there's still, we still need to try to find some recourse to a stable resolution. But there is a almost a strange way that we want to i think education today wants to hide behind this notion of critical thinking and also to to define it 
in, in well, in often vague ways. But there's nothing virtuous in education about indulging amateur wrongness. That simply to play at ideas, but to fall completely short of something like the art of thinking. Okay, this takes us back to thinking about Gramsci, right? That we may want to elevate play to the level of art, but it isn't, right? That freedom of thought without, again, the cognitive repertoire, it doesn't rise to the level of liberated thought. And again, I think that, you know, people like Hyde are also responding to events on campuses that have been well publicized um, students refusing to hear a scholar or that can be characterized as charismatics with a therapeutic inheritance disputing other professionals that who are serving up culture so there's an idea here in again this goes back to what Russell's saying about the individual um, and there's a for, for citizenship, there is maybe a curtailment of intellectual and aesthetic impulses, and as he says, the absence of creativeness, which doesn't sound fun. It sounds like a really, like a strict discipline in, in cultivating citizenship rather than just in cultivating individuals. And there's a sense to suspend or to de-emphasize what you think and to jettison mere opinion, unless you can really situate it, argue it. And that this has to be demanded of real scholars, right? That, well, what you think is, is obviously important, but not that important. So for example, it, it shows a higher degree of scholarship to be able to set yourself aside and just to interpret and explain, well, forget about what you think about Bertrand Russell or what you think about Nietzsche, but to be able to understand and explain what Bertrand Russell thought about Nietzsche, that in a sense, in terms of a classic scholarship, that's more productive. So you take a step further away from what you think, and you're not explicitly stepping further into it. Now, of course, you're always exercising your own interpretations and what you think Bertrand Russell thought of Nietzsche might be different from someone else, but there's still the possibility for authority there. But interestingly, that this, in a way, it's depersonalized, but it, in a sense, has a higher value, and strangely, it will bring you into a greater possession of what you yourself think. I mentioned cognitive repertoire already here. And this is a good example of a very, that, that it shows a very high degree of a developed cognitive repertoire using this example of commenting on what someone said or thought about someone else, right? That's, that you set yourself aside, right? There's sort of an ego check here. Again, that there's humility. There's, that these checks on pride are in place. Now, it may not be necessarily a cosmic piety, the complete opposite of uh, what Russell suggests about Dewey. But this also brings in this notion of temperature, and we'll be getting to Oakshot in the future, but Oakshot, Michael Oakshot, in some ways has, has a great insight here, and again, temperature is can be a, a useful tool here, thinking about objective truth and facts, that they're cool. And Oakshot says that a university, and perhaps even an entire education system, it should be invested in setting aside hot allegiances, right? We think of science and other such pursuits as dispassionate, right? Not as passionate. And it's important for education to be that because for the rest of the time, students as young people are in this hot outer world, right? So you can have a hot outer world where people are screaming about justice and you can also have this cool 
inner cloister where people are talking about truth. So how, how I feel, what I think, my opinions, my truth in this realm of personal feelings, passions, desires, inclinations, whims, that it's very hot. Like fire. Almost like the kind of fire you would find in acts of arson. Versus a, a very different sense of a cool, dispassionate education that, if anything, is more like a fire extinguisher. It's Again, it's in a sense, TC is anti-therapeutic, but only as a consequence of, you know, new student-centered therapeutic approaches being anti-teacher-centered. That being able to, in a a sense, it sounds very metaphysical, but to distance yourself from yourself. Sometimes a great exercise of this is in debate, playing devil's advocate, arguing for the opposite position. Okay, so that's pretty much everything I wanted to say in this section on Russell. I think in some ways, maybe I underestimated the difficulty of some of the implications in trying to draw it out. But I think it, I think the big idea about citizenship and this notion about that there are these, that there are these sacrifices that we have to be willing to make that perhaps this the newest form of education in this student-centered mode cannot cannot oblige and just as rousseau might have been willing to sacrifice liberty for equality it may be that in this sc that there is a willingness or even an eagerness to sacrifice citizenship for individuality and, I mean, for, for a teacher-centered approach, for the opposite approach, it's a problem. That we cannot be so willing or even eager to sacrifice liberty for equality or to sacrifice citizenship for individuality. Or at least we need this lively debate between these things along these lines. I mean, it's going to be a very hard or unpopular position if people can cast you as being against equality or as against the individual. But that's also just because it's also a consequence of how stacked the deck is against any philosophy that has any kind of traditional or conservative bent. It's saying, well, you know, sometimes good citizenship requires, you know, the curtailment of impulses, intellectual and aesthetic, and an absence of creativeness, or willing to acquiesce or or even to exert yourselves for the preservation of a status quo that we can admire. It's very hard to imagine how that idea can have any place in education today, mainly because of this problem of education as having become its own orthodoxy, and that it lacks a diversity of ideas, and that it needs to be brought back into something that is heterodox, because that will lead to the further development and refinement of ideas, the way that opposing ideas or a contest of ideas improve all of the ideas. I've, I've kind of used before, this is kind of an indelicate um, analogy, but when you only have something like an echo chamber, right? when you only have one idea kind of being bounced and shared around, that it can just in a descriptive sense, in a a natural genetic sense, that it can have this kind of incestuous inbreeding type influence where the idea actually starts to degrade itself by just reproducing and replicating itself. It starts to obtain um, certain, certain features that may not be desirable or may not be conducive to the health of the overall organism or to the overall population. Okay. 
So maybe at some point in the future, I'll come back and try to clean up some of the things about Russell um, that were not completely clear. But I think I'll, I'll wrap it up for today. I'm right at the hour mark. And so that is Russell in all of the shades of complexity. But I think, in a sense, um, in my own sort of rhetorical tactic of trying to recruit or pull Russell into the teacher-centered camp and to, to even to try to bank in on some connection with Gramsci, an, an unlikely pair. So I'll stop here, and I'll thank you for listening to Unchanging Education. <laughs>